Um, Got to read the COI statement. Um, Dr. Correale, he does have financial interests in, as a consultant for Agenis in the last 12 months. Um, Alan Hartford, the course director for the CME activity reports that his relationship with industry has been resolved by validating the content of his presentation. He reports that he does not intend to discuss off-label or investigational use of a product or device. I do. Oh. I will. Okay. So he does not attest that, and I take that back. There will be off-label discussion, and he attests that he is not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. Okay. All right. Well, with that done, um, it's a real pleasure to introduce to you uh, this afternoon Tyler Curiel, who is currently a professor in the School of Medicine and the Division of Hematology Oncology at the University of, Health, of Texas Health in San Antonio and at the Mays Family Cancer Center. Um, here he holds the Daisy M. Skinner President's Chair in Cancer Immunology. Um, so Tyler's background, he has an MD from Duke University and a, um, an MPH, Public Health, from Harvard. He um, conducted his clinical internships and residency at Yale and then conducted a series of research and clinical fellowships in infectious diseases initially at Duke and Harvard, in medicine at Harvard, and in medical oncology um, at the University of Colorado Health Sciences Center in Denver. That's where he began his um, career as a um, assistant professor at the University of Colorado. Um, there he directed Colorado's AIDS-related malignancy program. Um, from there, he moved to Baylor in the, um, I think, late 90s, and then to Tulane, where he became a tenured professor of medicine and serving as the section chief of hematology and medical oncology. There, he held the Henderson Chair in Medicine. Um, in 2006, he moved to San Antonio, where he briefly served as the actual, actually, as the director of the San Antonio Cancer Institute. And... Um, it was when Tyler really began doing more work in cancer immunology that um, we, and I was still training, that um, a couple of his notable papers uh, became really the way I learned about Tyler's work. Uh, Tyler was the first to publish uh, a role for regulatory T cells in human cancer, looking at patients with um, ovarian cancer. And those studies came out in the early 2000s during a very exciting time um, of just discovery in immunosuppression in cancer. Around that same time, he published the first report of PDL1 um, on non-cancer cells in human malignancies, um, looking at myeloid cells. So some very notable papers that um, really have been uh, hallmarks in the field of, of the work that he does as a clinician and scientist. So Tyler, in addition to um, running a large productive research lab, I think currently funded by three NCIRL1s, also is a clinician who is seeing patients and running early phase clinical trials. Um, he's been a, a, a wonderful collaborator, and um, I'm so pleased I could go on and on, but I've got to leave time for Tyler. So uh, it's a pleasure to introduce to you um, Tyler today. Thanks. Wow, thanks. I was listening to that and thinking, who's she talking about? Uh, but I, I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. I was thinking the last time I was on the Dartmouth campus, I just graduated from college, 
and my roommate talked me into hiking the Appalachian Trail starting at the north. And we came through Hanover on Alumni Day, and all the tents were out there. And so we had lunch with the, uh, with the Dartmouth Class of 72 alum reunion. So it was very cool. And I, but, and I haven't been back since, but I, I recognize the quad. So thank you for letting me come here. Um, so uh, those were the disclosures. So what I'm going to do is um, I hope we'll have a little fun here. I'm going to try to tell you about uh, one of the major paradigms that my lab was involved in, in helping develop that's driving cancer immunotherapy today about uh, PDL1 and PD1. And I still claim that this pointer doesn't work. Okay, and we're going to talk about some, some novel effects of tumor PDL1, including activating um, mTOR, what some of those outcomes are, and then how these controls work. And I'm going to show you that this uh, cell intrinsic signaling property of PDL1 potentially is more important than the, the paradigm that, that's driving uh, the field. So here, here's a part of what's driving cancer immunotherapy. You have these immune checkpoints. I can wander around because I'm mic'd up. So uh, you've got these antigen presenting cells and you've got T cells. This is what you need to kill the tumor. And uh, is there another pointer somewhere? Oh, okay, thanks. So the T cell is going to get its major instruction is who am I supposed to do something about? And that's the T cell receptor, and it's going to recognize an antigen. That's called signal one. So now the T cell knows the who, like this is the thing I'm supposed to do something about. But the big question is, what am I supposed to be doing? And that's where all these co-signaling molecules come into play that are going to interact with other um, receptors on the T cell. Just super again, disappear. All right, so I'll see if I can just uh, wander around that. that actually, we'll, a little bit. Thanks. We'll get you a brighter okay. one. Uh, so, the basis for some of the cancer immunotherapy that's been so successful is antibodies that will block an interaction with the negative PD1 signal on a T cell yes. and PDL1 on a tumor or antigen presenting cell. Thanks. So, yeah, okay, that's what I'm talking about. All right, so. Um, the, the way these immune signals work, and th some of them will tell a T cell, stop, mission accomplished, job is done, go home. And, and, and under normal circumstances, that's how you shut down an immune response. So you don't have pathologic inflammation. But it's not okay when the cancer is actually there and the T cells are getting faked out because they're getting this information that says, uh, all done. Uh, this is immune fake news. It's just, it's rampant. <laughs> fake news is rampant. But the tumor is spreading this fake news and the T cells are believing it and they go home. But if you can block those fake signals, you can actually get some pretty good uh, responses. So this all, the, for me, the foundational paper of this field of immune checkpoint blockade is this paper in 2002 from Leiping Chen's lab. So he found this molecule he called uh, B7H1, and most people now call it PDL1, same molecule. And here's this really foundational observation. So you have these immune checkpoints that are supposed to be instructing immune cells. And, but it turns out that if you look on tumors, different kinds of tumors, they're expressing this immune checkpoint. Nobody had ever seen that, nobody had ever heard of that. But even more shockingly, um, this is the foundational piece of data. You take a tumor cell, in this case, it's a melanoma cell that doesn't express PDL1, and you incubate T cells with it, and a couple of them will die. And then you put in a mock transfection, and a couple more will die. But then you put in the, the PDL1 molecule, and now a lot of T cells die, and you can prevent them by dying by blocking that interaction with an antibody. That's the first evidence that T cells, ex uh, tumors express immune checkpoints 
and it can kill T cells. So that's where that started. So one year later, um, we had a paper, and this is when uh, star trainee Wei Ping Zhu was in the lab, and what we showed was that PDL1 could also be expressed on immune cells and trip up your T cells. And so we showed that you could take ovarian cancer tumors from patients, put them in immune deficient mice, and at the time, it was this novel thing called humanized mice. Nobody had ever heard of this. And, and you put those, you can take the autologous tumor and the autologous T cells in the mice, and the T cells can't control the tumor growth. But if you block the, uh, you co-transfect, you co-put co in with the T cells, the dendritic cells from the same patient. And dendritic cells, everybody thinks, oh, these are the good guys, these are activating T cells. Well, the dendritic cells actually were making the tumor grow faster and were killing the T cells. But if we used anti-PDL1 antibody to block the, um, the dendritic cells, now you could control the tumor, get more interferon gamma. This is an apoptotic tumor cell. This T cell is killing that tumor. And this was the first demonstration that anti-PDL1 immunotherapy directed against its immune cells could, could treat a human tumor with, with the human immune system. And then eventually, uh, what we did here became uh, licensed as the drug Duvalumab. It's an anti-PDL1, and I was the, um, the local PI on, on that trial. But, but that led to this paradigm. This paradigm, I call it the dreaded PDL1, PD1 axis. And what you have is PDL1 expressed on tumors or on antigen presenting cells, and they give negative signals to these uh, PD1 receptors on T cells, and that antibodies that can block the off signal from the, uh, the tumor or the immune cells or block the off signal of the T cell, that's going to make the immune system work better. And it turns out that paradigm is totally true, but it's incomplete. So um, I, hate, I hated hearing about the PD1, PDL1 axis because I kept saying, you know, nobody's actually formally proven this. There's so much more to the story. And so it turns out, you know, we showed and others showed that uh, immune cell PDL1 also generates Tregs. Myeloid derived suppressor cells need PDL1 to be suppressive that non-host immune PDL1 can infect anti-tumor immunity, and most damningly, that the PDL1 expression on tumors, which is an FDA-licensed biomarker for who will or won't respond to anti-PDL1 or anti-PDL1, it's lousy. It doesn't really predict well who will and won't respond. So there's a lot more going on to the story. So at this point, we're gonna pause just for a second and say, immunotherapy, we've learned so much, and it's so successful, and it's treating so many patients, but there's still all this stuff that we don't know so now we have a little audience quiz here. When was the first cancer immunotherapy FDA approval? Like has it only been around for a year, and that's why we don't know all the answers to these questions? Or has it been around a long time, and we just haven't figured things out? Okay, so show of hands here. If you think the first cancer immunotherapy was approved by the FDA in the last 25 years. No, last 10 years. Raise your hand. One hand. If you think the first cancer immunotherapy was approved by the FDA in the last quarter of a century, 25 years, raise your hand. Half, a little over half. If you think the first immunotherapy for cancer was approved by the FDA in the last 50 years, half century, longer than the Dartmouth class of 72, raise your hand. Okay, that's a little close to half. 75 years, one hand. Century, 100 years. Did we even have an FDA? Okay, so wait for it, wait for it. It's been 100 years. 
Coley's toxins, 1923. First cancer immunotherapy, the FDA was founded in 1908, by the way. So it's been around for more than 100 years. We've, we've had cancer immunotherapy for 100 years. But there's all this important stuff about immunotherapy that we just absolutely don't know about. How can this be? So here's what I did. So uh, in two, 2013 or so, I took this unsuspecting graduate student, Curtis Clark. So you, you could not do this to a postdoc. I said, Curtis, here's what we're going to do. There's this dreaded PD-1, PD-L1 axis out there, and everybody's talking about how you block the one and it blocks the other, and that's how these antibodies work. Nobody knows. Let's just do the pivotal experiment and prove once and for all whether tumor PDL1 talks to T cell PD1, and that's the basis for immunotherapy, PS, I think it is. And it's gonna be really boring, but we'll put it on the books. But then something cool will happen after that, but I just can't tell you what, right? Now, a postdoc would say, you're out of your mind. I've gotta get a job. So he said, dude, that, that, that sounds great. Let's, let's do that. So, so we did, and so, so here, and here's, here's what happened. So we decided to use um, IV8-aggressive ovarian cancer, and we've, we've published on properties of this tumor. It expresses PD-L1. We used the B16 melanoma workhorse, tumor that's lousy at immunotherapy response, tumor that's really good, and we used SHRNAs to knock down the PD-L1 expression. Later on, we used CRISPR to knock it out. I'm not going to distinguish between low and knockout. They're the same. And we showed that we could knock the uh, PD-L1 down. It wouldn't get upregulated by, um, by interferon gamma. And uh, we showed that the tumors expressed PD-L1. And then shock number one was, oh, wait a minute. The tumors are also expressing PD-1, the T-cell co-receptor. So things were getting pretty interesting. I said, yeah, I told you. I, I, still, I have no idea where this is going, but this is very cool. So uh, then Curtis comes in. So we've made the clones. And he said, the PD-L1 low clones aren't growing very well. They're growing slower. And we also made a PDL1 overexpress that was going faster. I said, well, that's kind of interesting. But... So I said, Let, let's just go straight and do the home run experiment. Will the PDL1 low tumor behave differently in a mouse, in, in vivo? So you, can, you know, if you knock PDL1 down and put it in an immune intact mouse, it's going to grow slower, right? You know that, because PDL1 is a major immune escape molecule. So I said, don't even bother. Put them in NSG mice. Those mice are totally immune deficient. They have no immune systems. They're the immune Sahara Desert. And here's what happens. So you take the B16 uh, cells, you put them in um, sub-Q in these NSG mice. There's the control tumor growth. When you overexpress PD-01, the tumors go faster. When you underexpress PD-01, the tumors go slower. These are two different clones. Everything I'm going to show you is validated in multiple clones that themselves are validated. I don't have time to go into it, but, but they are. And we also look at lung metastases. And we use different um, melanoma genes in lungs. And the PDL1 high tumor is giving you the most lung metastases. There's your control tumors. This is just normalized to the control tumor. And the PDL1 low tumors are not giving you very big metastases. And this is all corrected for tumor size. So now all of a sudden we've just blown up, already blown up the paradigm. Because here's differential PDL1 tumor growth and metastases, but there's no immune system. It's got nothing to do with your immune response. And um, we did this, we showed the same thing, i.e. ovarian cancer, but this is all genetic engineering. So the question is, if you gave an anti-PDL1 antibody and there wasn't an immune system, would something happen? So we go back to our NSG mice, B16, there's the growth without the antibody, and you give anti-PDL1 and it slows the tumors down. There's no immune system. Violation of dogma, violation of... Uh, 
the system. Can't, how can this be happening? And we also used anti-PD-1, and it also reduced, they both reduced lung metastases, no immune system. And you go in vitro, and you take the antibodies, and you ask, will the antibodies alter tumor growth? So in your control cell, you give anti-PD-L1, the tumors go slower, there's no effect on your PD-L1 low tumors, good thing. Uh, you take the anti-PD-1, and it slows uh, tumor growth. And, but it, surprisingly here, it doesn't slow the growth of the PD-L1 low tumors. They still have PD-1, and, but it doesn't work. So it's kind of looking like PD-1 and PD-L1 are cooperating somehow. But anyway, the point is that the antibodies that we're using in the clinic can directly affect tumor. The PD-L1 in the tumor can affect its growth, the metastatic spread, and response to the antibody in the total absence of an immune system, and that's not what the rule book says, but th there's what it is. And around the time that we were doing this, um, Arlene Sharp had a really nice paper in Cell that said that melanoma-intrinsic PD-1 gave cell-intrinsic signals, and what they showed was that it slowed uh, tumor growth and uh, had a, this response as well. So there's something up with these immune checkpoints, PD-1 and PD-L1, seem to have the cell intrinsic signal. We did RNA-seq and found that there were dozens of canonical signaling pathways that were affected by PD-L1. I'm just going to show you one example. We published uh, three major pathways. I'll show you one example. Let's look at TORC1, mTOR. So mammalian target of rapamycin has two complexes, TORC1, TORC2. Uh, they both have mTOR protein and in different subcomponents. Raptor is a foundational component of the TORC1 complex. Richter is a foundational protein in the TORC2 complex. This is going to be important later on. And you can measure activity of TORC1 and TORC2 signals by looking at phosphorylation of downstream targets. We looked at a bunch. I'm just going to show you one in each for, for simplicity. So if you look in the ID8 aggressive ovarian cancer cells, what you find is when you knock PDL1 out, look at here to here, the uh, TORC1 signal goes down. And then we looked at serum starvation. I'm not going to talk about that today. And the TORC2 signal goes way up. So this P the cell intrinsic PDL1 is affecting TORC1 and TORC2 in the tumors. We saw the same thing in B16 melanoma. And I'm not going to show the data. Read Curtis's paper. And uh, this PDL1 status potentially could account for the difference in proliferation. Autopsy didn't talk about sensitivity to autopsy inhibitors. I didn't talk about. And at this point, everything I'm showing you is just correlational. PDL1 is driving TORC1. We don't know how. TORC1 is associated with weird outcomes like in vivo growth and autopsy, but we don't really know how. And then oh, we, did, we, we, did, we replicated all this data in human cells as well, including the fact that they express PD-1, and I'm showing you ovarian cancer data here, and uh, that's the summary of what I just said. And in the interest of time, I'm just going to skip that. But and, uh, so, what I just showed you is basically published. What I'm going to show you now is pretty much unpublished stuff that I think is pretty cool. We'll see what you think. So, one, I have two big questions. One is, is there an association? between the PDL1-driven programs we're seeing and any of these pathologic or treatment-resistant outcomes. And we'll use TORC1 as an example. And the other question we'll come to later is, how does PDL1 affect these pathways and these gene products and so on? Now, the big question is, does it mean anything? So should anybody care? Right? That's what you really care about. So I told you earlier that Raptor 
is a foundational protein of TORC1. If you deplete RAF throughout the cells, you will deplete TORC1 signals. So what we did was we went to our ID8 aggressive, really nasty tumor, and we made raptor low tumor cells, we confirmed it, and we confirmed that TORC1 signaling was down, and tumor pdl one expression did not change. And that's really important to remember. So what I'm doing now is I'm leaving tumor pdl one intact, and I'm depleting one of its downstream uh, signaling pathways. So we're gonna dissociate now the tumor pdl one expression from its cell intrinsic signaling by doing this. And, uh, oops, I, I meant for that to be uh, blah, blah. That's really cool stuff. I didn't mean to talk about it today. Okay. Um, so, surprise. So, we put the tumors in immune-competent mice, and they grew slower, and that's not a real big surprise. And we put them in the immune-deficient NSG mice, and the raptor low cells are growing slower, and you measure growth of these tumors by uh, ascites weight gain or by luciferous bioluminescence. They track really well. I've just got some weight gain data here. And it's not really super surprising that raptor low tumors are growing slower because the initial studies of mTOR and tumors was that mTOR was supposedly making tumors grow faster, and that was the basis for using mTOR inhibitors to treat cancer. So that's not real surprising, but at least you know there's a functional outcome. What is real surprising is this. So um, this is immunology talk. This is a cancer crowd, not an immunology crowd necessarily, right? Okay. So um, this is a signature of, of generally activated T cells. And in, so these are immune deficient mice. I just showed you this for as an example. These are immune competent mice. You put the raptor low ID8 aggressive cells in the immune competent mice, and you get uh, th these are intratumoral tumor infiltrating T cells, and there's a lot more activated T cells. PDL1 expressions not changed, just internal downstream signaling is changed. And T cell stem cells with this uh, CXCR5 TCF1 positive signature are way up. And these T cell stem cells have been associated with favorable immune responses, and response to anti-PD-1, anti-PDL-1 therapy. So these cells are going way up, although PDL-1 is unchanged. All I've done is I've interfered with cell intrinsic mTOR. That's a big surprise. The next big surprise is it's not just about T cells per se, but it's very regimented. And if you look at what T cells or what immune cells it's very specific based on chemokine receptor expression and where those, T's, where those immune cells are. So what I'm looking at here, this is just total CCR2 expressing immune cells. And what you find is that in the tumor, when, when you're raptor deficient, that uh, the CCR2 influx is way down. And these, and for the most part, are bad cells in cancer, and you want them to be low. And in the draining lymph nodes, they're up, and in the ascites, they're no different. So there's a lot of moving parts here. You've got receptor-driven differences in immune cells that also differ in different anatomic compartments, but they're moving in directions that you would think would be favorable to the tumor when you get rid of, when you get rid of the tumor. Uh, this data set here is from melanoma, because I don't have the comparable data in, in these mice yet. But in, if you take control and PD-L1 knockout melanoma cells in mice, you will find that in the knockout mice, 
the, the repertoire of chemokines in the tumor is vastly different than when you inject the control cells. And look, this is CCL2 off the meter in the knockout cells. That's the ligand for CCR2. And we see the same data in vitro in the ovarian cells. We just don't have this data yet. But what it's, what's pretty clear to us is that this cell intrinsic PDL1 is altering chemokine receptors at the tumor that's altering the tumor infiltrates. Uh, that, that's very surprising. And then finally, would it affect immunotherapy? And it does. So here's anti-PDL1. Uh, this is 200 milligrams per mouse given four times, and we've tried uh, much, much more aggressive treatment regimens, but the control tumors just do not respond to anti-PDL1, nothing. But if you, if you simply deplete TORC1 signaling by depleting Raptor, the cells will respond uh, very nicely. And those T cell stem cells that I mentioned in the Raptor low cells, they're responding to anti-PDL1 by going up significantly. Not only are they not going up in these guys, but they're actually going down. So we haven't proven that these T cell stem cells are the mechanism for why this, these mice respond to anti-PDL1, but in every other model that's been looked at, when these go up, the response goes up, and so we're, we're looking at that now. But the point is that we can say is that this cell intrinsic mTOR signaling is altering the response to immunotherapy in the absence of PDL1 expression because we've, we've recovered the tumors and look at them ex vivo, and there's no change in their PDL1 expression when we do this. So the other big question was how does tumor PDL1 drive TORC1 signals? It has no canonical signaling motifs, it's not really known to do much. There, there's one paper uh, that was published in Cell two years ago, and I, I actually I clipped a bunch of slides because I didn't know how the time was going to go. And if there's time at the end, I'll, I'll show you them. But there's one paper that says that the teeny cytoplasmic tail of PDL1 in mice uh, is responsible for tumor response to interferon beta. That's it. There's nothing in humans. So it's really not known how PDL1 is altering these TORC1 signals. So if you asked me, it's a good thing you didn't. I would have said, well, it's probably just blowing up the torque-1 complex. So here, here's, here's the cool thing. So once you get past a certain point, you get a whole bunch of funding, and you can do all kinds of stupid stuff, which, which I like to do. Or ask, actually, I like to I drink espresso shots my office. I think up the stuff, and I get the, the unsuspecting grad students and postdocs to do it. You can ask dumb questions like, ah, wonder what's up with torque-1. You, know, you don't have to know anything about it, because you can just go do it. So I really did not know much about TORC1, but what I did know was that all the TORC guys were depleting Raptor. I said, well, deplete Raptor. So, and I showed you all the Raptor data, right? Well, guess what? When you look in our PDL1 depleted cells, the Raptor isn't changed. Uh-oh. <laughs> Houston, we have a problem. So, so here's the TORC1 complex. There's a bunch of different proteins in there. It's TORC2 complex. None of those proteins are changed. And I'm saying, like, how, how is this possible? Well, so it turns out if you're a TORC1 guy, you would know, and I found out, there's another way that TORC1, so one way TORC1 cannot be activated is you can't put the complex together, right? Well, another way is that for TORC1 to be really active, 
It's got to be picked up by a thing called regulator. And regulator is a protein complex. It's made up of these five lambda proteins and these four RAG GTPases. These are not immune RAGs. These are GTPases. And then this complex will take the torque one uh, when it's up here. At, at, oops, let's see. So when it's, when, it's, when it's not docked on the lysosome, it's not activated. And when it gets docked when, on, the, on lysosomes, it will get activated. So, so regulator will grab the torque one complex and slam it onto a lysosome, and that will activate it. So you can have a torque one complex there, and it still won't be active because you need this regulator complex to grab the torque one, put it on the lysosome, and then downstream you need another protein called RET. And we're going to come back to that in a minute. But what we found was that uh, in, in, in the, the data I'm going to show you going forward from here is going to be in human ovarian cancer cells. We decided to narrow the focus largely to ovarian cancer because this, this project was getting kind of big and unwieldy. Uh, the first thing we found was in parental cells, PDL1 itself was um, associating with mTOR and associating with lysosomes. So this, this is LAMP. And it turns out that only TORC1 associates with lysosomes. So the mTOR guys say, just look at mTOR, because there's really good antibody for it, and that's your TORC1 readout when you're looking on lysosomes and regulators and stuff. And it turns out that in pdl one knockout cells, uh, mTOR is not associating with lysosomes, but it is in the parental cells. So mTOR associating with, lys with lysosomes means it's regulators docking it on the, the complex. So it looked like maybe regulator wasn't able to dock torque one on the complex. So the question is, is PDL1 increasing mTOR signals in our cells because it's docking torque one on lysosome? I never thought I would ask that question, but there it is. And the answer is yes. And so let's see how that works. So we did, there's a whole bunch of IPs you have to do, and Western blots are kind of boring to look at. But yet you confirm everything with digital confocal microscopy and Imeris imaging software, and that's really fun to look at. So I'm going to show you the fun pictures. But everything I'm going to show you is validated by mass spec IP and, and immunoblot. So what you can do is you can take uh, control cells or pdl one knockout cells, and you can look at mTOR, which is your TORC1 complex, and, and look at lamters. So lamter 1 and lamter 2 these are two big proteins in that regulator complex. And so the first thing you can find is in control cells, um, mTOR and lamTOR are co-localizing, and you interpret that as uh, TORC1 complex is being grabbed by the regulator complex. But it's not happening in the pdl one knockout cells. So an important component of TORC1 activation is just gone. The regulator doesn't appear to be grabbing TORC1. And that would be okay if TORC1 could still land on a lysosome some other way. So you're not done. You have to look for that. So the way you look at lysosomes is now you co-localize mTOR with lysosomal proteins, LAMP1 or LAMP2, in control cells or knockout cells. Here's a blow-up. And you find that in the control cells, mTOR is landing on lysosomes like it's supposed to, and it's not in the knockout cells. So now you know not only is regulator not grabbing TORC1, but it can't put it on lysosomes to activate it. And that's, that's all you need to know. Well, actually, sorry, there's one more thing you need to know. So right there, that's a good enough reason for TORC1. Actually, you know what? That is all you need to know. If it's not, if it's not on the lysosome, it's not going to get activated. But we know that the, we know that the 
mTOR guys are gonna yell at us. So the other cool thing is we did a lot of work with autophagy. So we had all the autophagy guys breathing down our neck about what doofuses we were, and we didn't do this, we didn't do that. And we published a paper on pd one and stem cells, all the stem cell guys yelling at us. So it's, it's lots of fun, you make lots of friends. Uh, so we knew that the mTOR guys were gonna have a cow if we didn't show them uh, the rest of the data. As far as I was concerned, we're done. So um, I'll show you in a minute the, the REV outcome. But the other thing is, so when the PDL1 cells, when you deplete PDL1, you don't have regulator grabbing torque one, it's not docking. Why not? So the why not is we looked at lanterns one, two, three in great detail, and we've looked at four and five in less detail. And I'll show you the lanterns one, two uh, data. So when you have uh, control cells, PDL1 knockout cells, you find that when you knock PDL1 out, the lamter content goes way down. So if you don't have lamters, you can't make good regulator, right? So then you can ask, okay, so the lamter's down, but why is it down? Oh, okay, and, and the other thing is, so we looked at all the rags, and all the rags are completely normal, and then here's what'll shut up the mTOR guys, we looked at REV. So you can't activate torque one without REV. So it turns out that in PDL1 knockouts, REV is unaffected. So they're waiting to get the signal, can't get it unless regulator grabs the torque one complex and slams it on the lysosome. If that doesn't happen, you never REV activate anything. So you can have all the REV you want, it's not gonna activate. Like you can have all the rafter you want, torque one won't get activated, intermediate step is missing. So all the other pieces to regulator, the downstream torque one activator, they're all there. The only thing missing is the lamters. So we think that the lamter depletion is why the complex isn't landing on lysosomes and why torque isn't getting activated. Then Simon's gonna say, well, why are the lamters down? So the short answer is I'm not totally sure, but what we did was we made we used CRISPR and we knocked one out of the cells, and then we used cassettes that have CRISPR-resistant flankers and we can knock different PDL1 constructs back into the cells, and I'll show you some of that data now. First, we made a TET-inducible PDL1, so we can dial in PDL1, low, medium, high, whatever you want. And so what I'm showing you here, uh, control uh, is, is uh, no cells, and then here's your PDL1 knockout cells, and then we dial in a low amount or a high amount of PDL1, and I'm skipping all the Westerns. We can titrate it to physiologic levels and everything in between. But the punchline is when you just put in a little whiff of PDL1, you suddenly get a huge message for Lamter1, kind of an intermediate message for Lamter2, and a low message for Lamter3. So it turns out that Lamters are like a house of cards. And if you put, if Lamter1 comes into the party here, and you've got the genes for it, you'll make all the other lamters and you'll make regulator just fine. And if you blow up lamter one, all the other lamters go away and, and, rag, and regulator goes away. So for all this to work, all you really, if you wanna have a good regulator complex, all you really need to do is just get lamter one out of the box. So we think that the reason that PDL1 can activate torque one is it just drives Lamter 1 and that drives the other Lamters. And when you deplete PDL1, it depletes Lamter 1 and that depletes all the other Lamters. And then that, that's how it looks 
to us uh, right now. So we think we have a story for how PBO1 regulates this. Then, of course, you'll ask me, well, how does it transcriptionally regulate laughter? I don't know, but we're, we're working on it. So that, that's, that's the next part of the story. So our model right now is that PDL1 um, activates transcription of LAMPTR1, you get protein, and that activates the other LAMPTR genes in the proteins. You get the regulator complex that can dock TORC1 on the lysosome, that gives you TORC1 activation. There are other pieces to the puzzle here. We actually think that PDL1 fits into a complex here, right on the side of regulator. I'm not going to go into that, that uh, data right now, but in a PDL1 sufficient tumor, you get lots of TORC1 signals. And in these PDL1 deficient signals, you get less TORC1. And I've showed you that TORC1 is involved in growth, metastasis, TILs, and response to immunotherapy. So it's worth studying. So we think there's a reason why uh, you would want to study it. So going back to the prevailing paradigm, the dreaded PD1, PDL1 axis. I hope you now believe that this ain't all there is to the story. There's more to the story. And if you just block PDL1 on the surface or PD1 on the T cells, there's all this other machinery under the iceberg there that's still happening that you haven't taken care of that can still work against you. And so if you could fix some of that, then you could maybe make immunotherapy work better. And I've already shown you that depleting torque one in tumors is one way to do it. And you're saying, well, if that's all there is to it, then why don't why don't um, mTOR inhibitors work better in clinic, right? So I'll tell you why they don't work better. So right now, most people think that for an mTOR inhibitor to work, you want to give enough to slow the tumor's growth. But that's not a good idea. And we've already published, we had a paper in uh, cancer research two years ago, and we showed that if you use high doses of mTOR, sufficient to reduce tumor mTOR, you will slow the tumor down a teeny-weeny little bit and you'll kill all the T cell function. And if you dial way back and give 1 30th of the dose of mTOR, all of a sudden you get great anti-tumor immune responses and you get better responses to immunotherapy. And then Rafi Ahmed published, mTOR is involved in generating T cell memory. And uh, Jim Allison's group also published at the same time that if you give low doses of mTOR inhibitors, immunotherapy works better. Now, it turns out the reason it works better is probably because it's acting on T cells, not the tumor. But the reason mTOR inhibitors as clinically used don't work is they destroy your T cell function. So you need to find a way to hit the tumor's mTOR just enough to stop that downstream signaling and not enough to kill your T cells. And we've actually done that too, and I was telling MJ about it earlier today, and I don't think I have time to talk about it right now. But, but, the, but that, that's one of the big concepts here. Okay, so I don't have a timer up here. How much time do I have left? Oh, is there, is there 20 a... 20 minutes. Okay. You have to one. Oh, okay. So I, I deleted a bunch of slides so I can keep us on time. So here's another big issue. So back in 2002, I had a really super smart undergraduate student, Susie Thibodeau. And I said to Susie, I can't remember why. I said, why don't you go see if PDL1's inside the cells instead of on top of the cells? And so she did, and the answer was it was. And then a whole bunch of things happened. We didn't get back to it until years later, but now we've finally gotten back to it. So it turns out that tumors express, some of them, express boatloads of PDL1 inside the cell and not on the cell surface. So what we did, um, so I, I said, I wonder 
if PDL1 on the surface is different than PDL1 in the cytoplasm, it would do different stuff. And the reason I thought that is uh, PD1 and PDL1 are immunoglobulin superfamily members. And PD1 looks like immunoglobulin heavy chain, and PDL1 looks like immunoglobulin light chain. And the way PD1 and PDL1 engage is they come together exactly like an antibody comes together to form an antigen binding site, but that can only happen when the cells are on the surface and they have that complicated 3D conformation with the disulfide bonding. Inside the cell, that structure, it just completely falls apart in instantly because the proteins get denatured inside the cell. So cytoplasmic PDL1 doesn't look like surface PDL1. It can't engage PD1 like on the surface. So my suspicion was it would have a totally different biology. So what we did was we CRISPR PDL1 out and we re-expressed PDL1 only in cytoplasm, only on the surface, or a total control. Uh, this is two years of really hard work with, with uh, very weird vectors. I don't have time to go into details of how we did that, but um, we did. I'll show you some validation. But it turns out that if you do RNA-seq, uh, cytoplasmic signaling is enormously different than surface signaling. These are clones of cytoplasmic PD-L1 expressors versus surface PD-L1 expressors. Unless I tell you otherwise, I'm still showing you human ovarian cancer data. I'm going to show you some melanoma data as well, but, but not yet. So we know there's a difference in signaling. And so um, this is called IMERIS um, masking technology. And so this is our PD-L1 cytoplasmic construct, and we're masking surface expression. So all you can see is PD-L1, which is green, in the cytoplasm. And there's really nothing on the surface. And this is um, cytoplasmic masking. So all you're seeing is the surface PDL1. And in the cytoplasmic construct, there's teeny weeny little dots of surface, but it's basically, um, did I say that back? Yeah, it's, 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 it's basically where it's supposed to be. So the cytoplasmic and surface constructs really only express PDL1 where it's supposed to be on the cytoplasm or surface, and they don't express it where it's not supposed to be. And we've did a huge amount of validation of uh, MFI intensity expression, percent positive cells, blah, 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 uh, total knock-ins, blah, 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 versus construct. I'm not going to go into details, but we, we spent over two years uh, really getting these things exactly the way we want them. So I'm very confident that what I'm showing you is cells that only express surface or only express cytoplasmic PDL1. And to, to a couple of punchlines. Cytoplasmic PDL1 activates TORC1, surface PDL1 does not. There's the knockout for comparison, there's the control, there's the total knock in. This is just one example, there's a bunch of other examples. But cytoplasmic PDL1 is the part of PDL1 that's driving that TORC1 signal. It is not the surface PDL1. Now, no matter what you tell people, they're still going to ask you, well, like, what's up with PD1? So I'm going to tell you. So uh, this is B16 mouse. And, and I mentioned that in Arlene Sharp's paper, they showed that PD-1, now it's, this is PD-1, not PD-1, PD-1 in tumors uh, mediates signals. So what, just a quick example, we made PD-1 knockouts as well. 
and we showed that PD-1 knockouts in melanoma reduces proliferation, reduces the number of stem cells, that's their number, and reduces their stem cell function, that's self-renewal. Um, I clipped all the stem cell stuff out, there's just not enough time. And then when you go in vivo, the uh, PD-1 less virulent compared to the control stem cells. So we agree with Arlene that in melanomas, PD-1 also signals in the tumor cells. However, PD-1 ovarian cells does not. So if you look at PD-1 in, in the ovarian cells, uh, just to make a long story short, uh, when you knock PD-1 out, you still get, th th this is, rag this is um, regulator docking on lysosomes, and this is Lamptor content, and this is uh, mTOR activation. When you knock PD-1 out, nothing happens. You get lamptors are normal, regulators normal, TORC1 docking is normal, mTOR activation is normal, and all of these things are very defective in the melanoma cells. So PD-1 cell intrinsic signaling is very different in ovarian tumors compared to melanomas, and so far all I've showed you is PD-L1 doesn't do, PD-1 doesn't do anything. Well, you could ask, well, maybe it's just because PD-1 doesn't do anything. Well, it does. PD-1 does lots of stuff. So um, this is proteomics data of, of uh, PD-1 cells. And uh, actually, I put up an, an immunoblock. So by RNA-seq and by proteomics, PD-1 is doing lots of stuff to lots of signaling pathways in ovarian cancer cells, just not in the pathways that you saw in melanoma, certainly not in the mTOR pathway and not in those chemokine pathways. So it signals, but it doesn't account for this mTOR phenotype. Um, but based on this prediction, so this is a little bit complicated now, and this is a good place to wrap this up. So if you deplete Raptor, like I showed you early, all you're gonna do is very specifically knock out TORC1 and nothing else. Now we're looking at PDL1 doesn't deplete Raptor, it depletes Lamptors. And lamters are what make regulator. Regulator controls TORC1, but it also controls ERK activation, and it also controls lysosome biology. So you would just expect, if you really want to see what's going on in a PDL1 knockout, you need to knock out lamters and uh, knock them out of control cells and knock them into uh, PDL1 knockout cells to really understand. We've done that, and I'm not going to show you the data now because it's not totally validated, but right now, preliminarily, if you knock Lamptors back into PDL1 knockouts or you deplete Lamptor1 from control cells, you replicate all of the in vitro findings I've mentioned. We haven't done any in vivo testing yet, but I don't want to show that because I don't think it's totally cleaned up yet. But what I can show you is that you still would predict that PDL1 knockout and Raptor low cells would behave differently based on what I told you. Um, and they do, and a, and a really big difference is uh, in the Raptor low cells, you get those T cell stem cells I showed you earlier, and the PDL1 knockout don't. So there's, there's a huge difference right there. And then here's PDL1 knockout, here's Raptor knockdown, and there's a really big difference in ERK signaling. So TORC1 knockout tells you about TORC1 biology, and that's important. But PDL1 knockout tells you about all those other things, and they're really different. 
And so we're still trying to sort out exactly what all those differences are. But, but here's our working model. So canonical is surface PDL1. It's got this funny looking shape here because it's got its 3D structure. Uh, cell intrinsic full length PDL1 is full length. It is total full length PDL1. It's got the cytoplasmic tail, but it's in the cytoplasm. This has the cytoplasmic tail, it's anchored to the membrane. This thing here is on the surface, this is the canonical stuff you see in all the drug ads. And it's, it, it's blocking PD-1 on the tumor and involved in exhaustion and so on. Internally, the cytoplasmic PDL1 is activating LAMTERS, ERKs, and TORC1. I mean, we, we have a, a, there's an isoform too of PDL1 that's been observed. There's one paper that's it's cytoplasmic, but nobody knows what it does. So what, uh, I, I clipped all the isoform 2 data out, but isoform 2 has a teeny effect on the LAMTERS and TORC1. It doesn't explain everything. It does other weird stuff that I, I can't talk about today, but there, there's just a lot more moving parts of this than, than, what the, um, than, than what the textbook says. And, uh, and there, there's the one single paper that mouse cytoplasmic tail, which is that, not that, that uh, promotes interferon beta and STAT3. I can tell you that this isoform 2 that I didn't get a chance to talk about has the signaling part that was described by these guys, and it doesn't account for the TORC1 uh, pathway. So there's other signaling elements that are yet to be defined. I've really talked about this. So just to close here, um, lambda expression does predict reduced survival in ovarian cancer and melanoma. And uh, here's another way of looking at it. And we also looked at uh, 550, uh, 550 patients in ovarian cancer and melanoma, a, a 99 patient melanoma tissue microarray and a 440 patient ovarian cancer microarray. And what we found was that about 20% of the melanomas and ovarians predominantly had cytoplasmic PDL1 only. 20% had predominantly surface PDL1 only, and the other 60% had a mix. And the cytoplasmic content of PDL1 predicted the LAMTER content, which is what we've been showing. And then uh, this is ovarian, this is melanoma. And cytoplasmic PDL1 predicted worse survival. Surface PDL1 had no effect on survival. I, I think that did not make it on here. So uh, to, to finish, what I've showed you today is that a tumor PDL1, it promotes TORC1, and I showed you a mechanism. For it. Wow, that was good timing. <laughs> um, uh, some tumors express predominantly cytoplasmic PDL1, and I showed you that's different than surface. And this is real life from tissue microarrays, real patients. The TORC1 signal mediates novel effects. The stem cells, I didn't get a chance to show you really, but I showed you anti tumor immunity, uh, two point, uh, immune checkpoint blockade resistance. And I showed you the data that they uh, predict survival in, in melanomas and ovarian cancer. And the bottom line, the PD-1, PD-L1 axis isn't the whole story. And we've recently identified drugs that can inter interact with those cell intrinsic pathways I didn't get a chance to talk about today. Okay, so here's me in my office drinking espresso shots. Here's the guys doing the work. Uh, Vincent, uh, head scientist, unbelievably great. Curtis, unsuspecting grad student that helped launch the new field. Uh, he did the torque one autophagy, Harsha does postdoc that did the uh, stem cell stuff, and Heather's been doing the digital imaging on the surface versus cyto. A lot of other people, do, and a lot of people doing um, a lot of um, 
a, a lot of work with us. And also my Dartmouth connection with MJ. It's been really great. It's been really fun collaborating with her. And we're talking about more stuff we're going to do in the future. So I'll stop there. I'll say thanks. And I think I'll lift time for questions. All right. Thanks, Tyler, for that excellent seminar. Um, I'll just I'll start with a question, if that's okay. Um, you so, ask a question? Oh my God! <laughs> um, so, so they're, the surface and cytoplasmic, as I understand, are totally different isoforms. So, no, no. or so, do they? Is so, there so, recirculation? Uh, so, let, let me clarify that. When, when we talk about PDL one, you're talking about isoform one. That's full length PDL one. There's a full length version that's embedded in the membrane. That was the surface, and there's a full length that's expressed in cytoplasm, and that's the data I showed you. There's an isoform 2 that's about the one-half C-terminal end. That isoform 2 is essentially only cytoplasmic, but I didn't okay. show you any of that data. It's in my laptop. We can look at it, but I didn't show it. Okay, so in that regard, then, what what's the communication, if they're the same protein, what's the communication between the compartments that are in the cytoplasm and outside. Is, what's known about recirculation? And so PDL1 does recirculate, um, and the, the, some of the factors that promote the recirculation have been published recently. Uh, some of the factors that degrade PDL1 in the cytoplasm and not on the surface have been published recently. So we're starting to understand a little bit about the recycling. There's not a lot known. The half-life of PDL1 recirculation, all that's been published. Okay. Um, it, it's six hours in, in normal cells, not cancer cells. So we're starting to understand. But what I will, what, what I will tell you here is that commonly used agents that induce PDL1 don't just induce PDL1. Interferon gamma, as an example, in our hands on tumors, preferentially induces surface, not cytoplasmic PDL1. And on immune cells, I don't know. And there's other agents I can't talk about that predominantly induce cytoplasmic, not surface. And this is all full length. Can't tell you why, it just does. And we're, we're trying to understand why that is. Okay. And the biology is very different when that happens. Yes. It seemed actually that your lamp expression was also somewhat altered. And so I'm wondering whether the lysosomes themselves, how they're structured and whether that affects your tumor growth. Good pickup, and I didn't get a chance to talk about that. So absolutely, when you deplete PDL1, the lysosome content goes down. So there's a master lysosome biogenesis gene called TFEB, TFEB. TFEB is reduced when you knock PDL1 down. So what we know at this point is that lysosome content is down, lysosome function is abnormal, as evidenced by the autophagy defects we've published. But we're now looking into lysosome acidification, and, it's, and lys lysosomes are critical for TORC1 activation. So even if you have regulators, torque one, and it's docking, you're still going to have defects. Yeah. ERK activation requires intact lysosomes. So we're looking into all of these things. I don't have answers, but we think that there's a whole field of lysosome biology here that needs to be understood to really know what's happening fully with the PDL1 effects. Thank you for pointing that out. <laughs> Break down your ovarian cancer patient data by subtype. 
So right now, our TMA, that, that where we got most of the data, was all high-grade serous. So we do have limited data on other tumors that's really not good enough to say. So, so uh, thank you for let, let me clarifying. The, the data I showed you is all high-grade serous, including the cell lines we're looking at. Uh, but we do want to know about other subtypes. And, and we're working with Roswell Park and MD Anderson getting data to see if there's a difference in those. We don't have that data yet. Because I know that ES2 is a clear cell. Yeah, thanks. Yes. Are any of the isoforms either cytoplasmic or membrane secreted to impact on uh, or synchronize other adjacent tumor cells? Yes, they are. So. Uh, first of all, there's there's four known isoforms of PDL1. This is in humans. In mice, there's no data of which I'm aware. In humans, you have four isoforms. Isoform one's the full length. Isoform two is that large C cytoplasmic. Isoform three and four are seen as message. They're not seen as protein. Isoform one, absolutely secreted as a soluble protein and also in tumor exosomes. And tumor exosomal PDL1 is known to exert immune suppressive effects that are distant from the primary tumor. And I've got a story that I'm working on with MJ about distal effects of PDL1 tumors. And um, so the answer is yes. And not, there's not, not much attention paid to the fact that it, the PDL1 is secreted and it can have distal effects. The isoform two, there's, there's no data. We, we haven't looked yet. Well, thanks. I'm glad I clicked all those slides.